0: glad you're all here today glad you're online watching with us i just want to ask you all one question i want to start by asking you one simple question and that question is what is holding you back what's holding you back from doing what you really want to do or maybe if i said another way what is limiting you What's really holding you back from doing what's really burning with passion inside of your Or maybe if I said to you, what is that voice that says to you, you can't do it, you're disqualified, you're not good enough? See, for the past few months or the past couple months, we've been talking about spiritual formation. We've been talking about the things that we do to keep Jesus at the center of our life. So we talked about we do activities like prayer or like dealing with our past or living in community. We talked about silence and solitude, these things that's important for us to do on a regular basis to keep Jesus the focal point of our life. And today I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to talk about what is our true identity and what is our calling. So for the next few weeks, I want to talk about our identity and our calling. But before I do that, I want to talk today about what holds us back. Because if we're really going to understand our identity and our calling, we have to say no to those voices that would say to us, you can't move forward. See, sometimes I think we feel like we're puppets on a string and there's things that are holding us back and they're kind of dictating the way that we behave. And before you can understand your identity and calling, it's good to say, let's cut those strings off. Let's cut off anything that would prohibit us from being who God has created us to be. See, the truth is, I believe a lot of really dedicated Christians never fully understand what is their identity and what is their calling. I think they understand part of it, maybe some of it, but I think a lot of people will finish at the end of their life without a full realization of what God really called them to do. And that's just kind of sad because you're just going to kind of miss out on some of the good things that God has planned for you. And I think there's other times too when God gives us a wake-up call and says, I want you to understand a little bit more of your identity, and I want you to understand a little bit more of your calling, because over time we can understand more of who we are or more of what we are created to do. So I want to spend today talking about what would hold us back. And Before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about a Jewish feast that would be going on 2,000 years ago today. See, if you lived in the days of Jesus or if you lived in the Old Testament time and you were a Jewish person that was dedicated to God, I'll tell you what you would be doing tomorrow. Tomorrow you would be building your sukkot in your backyard. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. A sukkot, a sukkot not to be confused with your clothing, a sukkot is like, it's like a portable tent. It's like a makeshift tent that as a good Jewish follower of God, once a year you would erect this structure in probably your backyard, and it just looked kind of like a tent. And for 10 days you're going to be living in that tent with your family. Maybe your friends are going to come over. You're going to be having your meals in that tent. It was part of an annual festival that God would say to his people, I want you to build this coat in your backyard and live in there. And there's a reason that he had you live in there and there's a reason I'm talking about it today because part of living in that Sukkot is to remind you of who you really are and what God has called you to do. See, in the Old Testament, there's all these different feasts and all these different festivals sprinkled all through the Old Testament. I think sometime we look at them and we say, oh yeah, that was for back then. Those things are just as relevant for Today. Maybe not necessarily that we have to go home and build a coat in our backyard, but the principles of what they teach us are amazing. So I want to talk a little bit more about what were the Israelites doing? Why did they build that coat in their backyard to, to have that festival of living in there for a week? Because it kind of seems kind of silly. You're in your house right here, and they probably lived in a small little house and built a little temporary house in your backyard to live in for 10 days. Why would you even do that? See, God had a specific reason for that. See, if you were a good Israelite, you've been pretty busy for the last few weeks because I think I told you a few weeks ago that on Monday, September 6th, in the evening, that marked Rosh Hashanah. That began the Jewish New Year. This is a time the Jewish people would set their calendars. This is January 1 for them. And your New Year celebration would start on September 6th in the evening of Gaul through the 7th, and on the 8th in the afternoon, you would stop your festivities. And it was a powerful celebration that not only were you celebrating the beginning of the year, but it was considered a holy day that everybody would come together to worship God. All the Israelites would come together. You'd come far and wide and you would come to make God the center of your life. You want a little bit more details about this? And You look at Leviticus 23 about how God would call people together for this one special day. And so this day was called Rosh Hashanah. And part of the day, it says in Leviticus 23, verse 24, it says, on that day commemorate with a loud blast of the trumpet. That's very significant in Old Testament when they would blast the trumpet, blast the horn. It would, can sometimes it could be a call to war, but in this situation, it's in a call to wake up it's a call to put God at the center of your life it is a reminder that you need to wake up to the reality of who God is and what he has done for you and so the Jewish people on Rosh Hashanah it's a time for them to examine their lives and say do I really put God first in my life and maybe if I don't what am I going to do today to help put him first you kind of think of it we have new year's resolutions which kind of about you know january one we're all thinking of new things that we want to do for the next year and we like to make commitments i'm going to exercise more or eat better or maybe join a gym or do a bible study or work harder or save more money we all come up with these ideas on january one of resolutions and what do resolutions all have in common they really don't work that well It's a lot of fun thinking, boy, I'm going to get really fit in the new year. I'm going to not eat all the candy I ate like last year. We have all these little ideas, but they really don't work that well. Statistically, your New Year's resolution is not going to work out a couple days later. And I think God knew the exact same thing for Rosh Hashanah. When the Jewish people began their new year, he knew that their new goals won't work out well. So he's going to follow it up with something called the days of awe. God had a strategy to help people put him first in their life. Now let me say something too about the Israelites. See, a lot of times our New Year's resolutions are pretty self-centered. It's not always bad. It's good to eat better or to join a gym or work harder. But a lot of times what we do in our New Year's celebration, our resolutions, is we, we make a lot of dedications to things that have an expiration date, like our savings account or our work. exercise, and not any of those are bad, but sometimes we put a lot of effort into things that are going to pass away. And for the Jewish people on Rosh Hashanah, they're going to look at things that, that don't have an expiration date, like your relationship with God and the impact that you could have on your family and friends that could last generations beyond you. So that's going to be their primary focus. So the Jewish people on Rosh Hashanah are going to hear that trumpet blast, a reminder of the call to worship God and keep Him in the center of your life. But then what God is going to do, He led the people of Israel through this 10-day period called the 10 days of awe. And it's during that time that you cry out to God and you say, God, is there anything in my life that would hinder my relationship with you? It's a time of repentance. It's a time to turn from the way you're doing things and say to God, okay, how do I get on track with you and put you first in my life? It's kind of significant that they would take those 10 days to really unearth any bad behavior and any bad patterns that they would have in their life. So I think sometimes what we do is we're like, okay, I don't eat healthy. Boom, January 1, I'm going to eat healthy. Without saying, why do I do this all the time? And that's what the 10 days of all were about, of kind of sitting with the Lord and trying to understand maybe some of your bad rhythms that are going on and asking God to help unwind those bad rhythms as you go into the new year. So the 10 days of all would end with the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, which is Yom Kippur which is also called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, all the Israelites would go back to the temple. There's a day of sacrifices, a day of priests burning incense and taking the sacrifices and going into the holies of holies. And at the end of that day, you would celebrate because your relationship with God had been restored. And once again, as a people of God, you are dwelling with him without the obstacle of sin influencing your life. And that was the whole purpose of Rosh Hashanah, the blowing of the trumpets, the 10 days of awe, so you could dwell in peace with God. And then he would follow that up five days later with his whole festival of tabernacles, which you would go in your backyard and start living in your sukkot. So you could sit in that tent and remind yourself of what God had done for your ancestors years ago when he got them out of Egypt and how they lived with God in the wilderness for 40 years and he took care of every single one of your needs. So to be in your little tent in your backyard for that, that week, you would just every day remind yourself of, look what God has done for us. It's kind of like a week of Thanksgiving where you remember what God has done and you just, you're just satisfied because you know God takes care of you. And it's in the midst of remembering what God has done that we remember who we are and we remember what God has called us to do. And so it's this whole beautiful picture that the Old Testament gives us of how we put God at the center of our life and how we awaken to that annual trumpet when he's calling us to be alert. So y'all might be wondering, why are you talking about this so much? Because see, I do believe that God is sounding his trumpet for the church right now. I believe that God is giving the church a trumpet sound to say, we need to wake up. That we need to wake up to the reality of who God is, and we need to wake up so we fully understand our identity and our calling. And I think God in His graciousness, and love and His compassion, He is sounding a trumpet and He's saying, assemble together and put me first in your life. And let me teach you who you are and what I have called to do. Because it's in the midst of understanding your identity and understanding what we are called to do that we start breaking free from the limitations that would try to hold us back. See, many people, many Jews on Yom Kippur, what they would do is they would say, we need to focus on two things. We need to focus on any internal vows that we have made that would hold us back, and we need to cut any strings off that are holding us back. And that's important that we do that. We cut off anything that would hinder us from becoming what God has called and created us to do. See, in the third chapter of Exodus, God visits Moses. Many of you are really familiar with that story, but in that third chapter of Exodus, God is beginning to explain to Moses his true identity and his calling. God calls Moses to be his representatives to lead the Israelites to freedom. And what is Moses' response when God calls him? He basically says to God, no, I'm not qualified. I don't want to do what you're calling me to do. Basically, Moses says to God, you picked the wrong person. What were you thinking? You weren't supposed to pick me. See, Moses comes up with five excuses that he gives to God on why he's not qualified. And I think those five excuses that Moses gave to God are the same five excuses that many of us use when God calls us to do something. See, what's so interesting about this story with Moses, Moses is just just being a shepherd one day, doing what he did. And he's out in his field watching his sheep, and suddenly he looks over and he sees this bush is burning. But the bush is not being consumed by fire, meaning the bush continues to burn. And I'm sure he sat there for a minute and thought, sooner or later that bush is going to extinguish itself. And it keeps burning, and it's burning and burning. So that is something very strange going on. And then he hears the voice of God calling him. And what does Moses say? He just says, no, I'll take a pass. I mean, he's seeing a demonstration of God's power in a burning bush, and he's hearing the voice of God, and he says, no. You wonder who does that. I think a lot of times we do that without even knowing we do it. Because we're so used to feelings of inadequacy that sometimes we just get used to saying no or just saying to God, no, pick somebody else. Fortunately, God was persuasive and kept going after Moses. Listen to the story in Exodus 3, verse 7 to 10. So then the Lord said to Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites now live. Look! The cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have, have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. I love that verse 7 and 8, where God says, I have seen the oppression of my people. I've heard their cries of distress. I'm aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them. See, God said that in the book of Exodus. But I think God says that every single day when he looks at people that are suffering, that are crying out to him, that are being oppressed. And every single day, God is calling Moseses to rise up and to do what he's calling him to do. I think we get surprised in verse 10 where it says, God said to Moses, now go. I'm sending you that you might lead my people. See, a lot of us are like Moses. And God is saying to us, go, I'm sending you. But we're like Moses and we're thinking, but if you only knew what I did in the past. Thing is, God knows what Moses did in the past. And God's not intimidated by that. And God's word to Moses was, go, I am sending you. So Moses comes up with five really good excuses. The first excuse he says to God is basically, I'm not good enough. Moses has a lot of self-doubt going on, saying, I'm just not good enough. Listen to Exodus 3.11. But Moses protested to God. Protested. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people out of Israel? In other words, God, you picked the wrong person. I'm going to be a disappointment. Nobody's going to listen to me. And how does God respond to him? In verse 12, he says... I will be with you. That's God's response to Moses saying, no way can you send me. God says, I will be with you. See, basically God's saying to Moses, you know, Moses, my plan to rescue people from suffering is not contingent upon your ability. Your ability, Moses, really will not determine the final outcome. What would determine the final outcome is that I am with you. So that's God's promise to Moses. You don't have to worry. You don't have to doubt. You do not have to worry about feeling inadequate because I will be with you. You know, those are the exact five words that Jesus said to his disciples when he gave them the Great Commission. He said, I'll be with you. Those are the exact five words that Haggai said to the Israelites when God told them to rebuild the temple. He said, I will be with you. See, when God calls you to do something, he backs it up and says, I will be with you. And you think Moses would have said, all right, you got me. All right, let's do this. But Moses comes up with excuse number two, which is, I don't know what to say. Basically, Moses says, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm unqualified because I, I don't really know what I'm going to say to anybody. In verse 13, Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will say, what is his name? And then what should I tell them? Basically, Moses was saying, you know, what, what if somebody asked me a really hard question? Have you ever thought about that? You're like, uh, oh, maybe I'll share Jesus with one of my friends or invite them to church. But what if they ask me a really hard theological question I don't know the answer to? So I'm not going to say anything. I think we do that sometimes. We get so worried about the what ifs that we don't really do what God has called us to do at the moment. And so what God is saying to Moses, listen to how he replied. He said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of your ancestors, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and God of Jacob has sent me to you. See, when God said, I am who I am, he is saying, Moses, I'm the creator. I created the world. I have dominion over the world. I have authority over the world. You don't have to worry about these little details. I'll take care of any little details that come up. You can trust me. I'm going to be with you. And I have authority over everything going on, so you're not going to have to worry. And at that point, you think Moses would say, all right, I'm all in. But Moses comes up with excuse number three, and he says, other people are going to think I'm delusional. I get that one. Moses basically says, other people aren't going to take me serious. They're not going to think I'm credible. In Exodus 4.1, it says, But Moses protested again. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say, The Lord's never appeared to you? See, that's a great question. What if people look at Moses and say, You're making all that up. That's just crazy talk. Why would God ever talk to you? Why would God ever speak to you? Why would God ever give you something like that to do? I think we worry about that but see i think what moses already forgot is that back in exodus 3 verse 18 it says the elders of israel will accept your message god already told them the people will listen to you the people will listen to you moses and moses is worrying about something that god already told them you don't have to worry about See, I love in chapter four, verses two through seven, then God said to Moses, he said, look, Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses said, I have a staff in my hand. And God said, throw it down on the ground. And he threw it down on the ground and it turned into a snake. And Moses jumped back. And then God said, pick up the snake. And Moses picks it up by its tail and immediately it turns back into a staff. And God says, you can do that. I'll perform that sign for you. He said, then they'll see that, then they will believe that I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. And then God said to Moses, one more thing, take your hand, put it inside of your coat. And when he pulled his hand out, it was covered in this white, terrible disease. And God said, put it back in your coat and pull it out. And his hand was completely healed. And God said, I'll do that for you as well. See, God was saying to Moses, I will follow up everything I tell you to do with signs and wonders i will back everything up i tell you to do with my power and people will know without a doubt that i have called you to do it but moses you're going to have to take the confidence to step forward and to actually do what i'm calling you to do now you think moses would have put his hand in and out of his coat and thought, that's pretty powerful okay god I'll i'll do it but moses comes up with excuse number four This is an easy one to come up with. He says, I think there's something wrong with me. Basically, Moses says to God, he pleaded with God in verse 10. Oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. I've never been. And I'm not now. Even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied in where my words get tangled. God told Moses, I'll be with you. He told Moses, I have authority over any situation that you're going to get into. But Moses has another excuse and just says, I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me. I think we know what that feels like sometimes to think, well, I could never do that. And sometimes it's easier to have confidence that God could do something in somebody else. But not yourself because we do keep a long list of things that are wrong with us that we think are wrong. We always think God could do something better through someone else. And look what God says to him again. He says, Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not see, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will be with you as you speak and I will instruct you what to say. See, once again, God comes back and says, I'm gonna be with you, Moses. Don't forget that. I will be with you and I'll tell you what to say. And then Moses comes up with excuse number five, which basically says, I really don't want to do it. He says to, pleads with God again in verse 13, Lord, please send somebody else. God says, I'll be with you twice. I'll tell you what to say. I'll perform signs and wonders. I am who I am. And Moses is like, Now send somebody else. I just feel so inadequate. See, it's so easy to be like Moses and you look at your inadequacies more than you look at God's power. And when we do that, we limit what God wants to do in our life and we hinder the work that God wants to do in our life. It was at that point in Exodus 4, verse 14, it says, then the Lord became angry with Moses. It's interesting. God didn't get mad at Moses for any of his weaknesses. God didn't get mad at Moses when Moses said, Yeah, but I'm not good at speaking. Didn't get mad at Moses when Moses said, I'm probably not smart enough to do this. I don't know what to say. God never got mad at him, never got angry at him. See, God was aware of every single one of Moses' challenges. He was aware of every single one of his weaknesses. See, what frustrated God is that Moses refused to believe that God could compensate for any of his weaknesses. Moses' biggest challenge was not his communication skills or his confidence. His biggest challenge was that he focused more on his weaknesses instead of God's ability and power. See, these five excuses that Moses had, or his four excuses, they were all pretty valid. He had every single one of those limitations, but God knew that getting into this. And God knew that those limitations would actually work to Moses' advantage because it would make Moses more dependent on God. God's not looking for our confidence or our skill or our ability. He's looking for us to depend on him. See, one of our biggest challenges in life is that we often make our challenges the focal point of our existence. And as we perseverate on our weaknesses, we become more and more convinced that God can never use us. Our lives are often consumed with trying to figure out how do we get rid of our weaknesses instead of figuring out how do I trust in God in the midst of my weaknesses. See, it's interesting. You look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. A lot of you know this verse. Whereas Paul is pleading with God, saying three times I pleaded with the Lord to take my weaknesses away from me. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weaknesses. Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecution and difficulties, for when I am weak, I am strong. So that's what God was saying to Moses. Yes, you have your weaknesses. But your weaknesses can be like a commodity in my hand because they will trust you to rely on me more and to see my power. See, when you don't know what to say, you're going to lean a lot more on God to say, you really better come through and tell me what to say. When you're nervous about standing in front of people, you're going to be a lot more effective when you're dependent on God. You better show up see, that's what God is saying to Moses. You're going to be effective when you learn to relax and let God take care of the situation. See, one of the biggest skills that we need to learn in order to understand our identity and our calling is we need to learn how to relax. And to relax is often very, very difficult. See, one of the best swimming skills that you can learn is the skill of learning how to float. When they teach small children how to swim, one of the first things that they're going to teach them to do is how do you float? Because if a little child gets in trouble in the water and they can't swim, they run out of energy to swim, you want to teach a child to instinctively roll over on your back and float. And then maybe somebody else will come along and save you or rescue you. And when you try to teach an adult how to float, that is one of the most difficult things that you can do. Because floating requires you to do nothing but relax. See, when we float, you get on your back, and we think we got to do something, like we got to move our arms or we got to stiffen up like a board. You're going to sink when you do that. In order to float, you have to learn how to relax. See, when you when you when you get all nervous floating, and you're panicking, you, you do those deep shallow breaths. When you relax you breathe in take a deep breath and you slowly exhale see when you're floating what keeps you above water is the air in your lungs that's how you float is by the air in your lungs and if you're panicking you don't keep enough air in your lungs and to float is counterintuitive, especially when you're in danger, because you think if I'm in danger, I've got to float. I've got to do something. And so you're trying to move your arms or your legs, or you're breathing too much. And the best way to survive drowning by floating is to do nothing but relax. It's hard for us to relax. But God is calling each one of us to relax. See, when Jesus called his disciples to be with him. In John 6, verse 28, his disciples said to Jesus, they said, you know, we want to perform God's work too. What do we need to do? And Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one that has sent you. Disciples are saying, we want to do what God's called us to do. How do we do it? And Jesus replies, Just believe in the one who has sent you. You're like, am I missing something? Shouldn't there be about 40 other things that I need to do? No, you believe in the one that has sent you. See, to believe, that's active. That's not just an intellectual sitting back saying, okay, I understand that, and now I believe. No, believe is this active participation. It's kind of like when your belief shows up in your actions and thoughts. But that word belief here, That's a strategic word. God said to his disciples, you want to do what God's called you to do, you need to believe in the one who has sent you. But Frederick Dale Bruner, in his excellent commentary on the book of John, he says the best way to translate that word belief into the English is by the word relax. To relax in. That is what God calls us to do, to do what he's called us to. To do is to relax into his care, to relax into his promises, to relax in the fact that he is I am who I am, to relax in the fact that God says, I am with you. The best way to show your belief is to relax into the arms of Jesus, the one who is calling you, That is how you do what God's called you to do, how you be who God's called you to be. You relax. You relax. We need to remind ourselves when God created mankind, he bent over and from the ground he picked up dust and dirt and he formed us into his image. And then what did God do? He breathed life into our lungs. It's God's breath in our lungs that we can float. It's God's breath in our lungs that we can float in any adverse situation that we get into. God has us all rigged. When you trust in Him and relax in Him, it's going to work out. The call he's put on your life, it's gonna happen. But you need to learn to relax and let his breath fill your lungs so you can float above any hard, raging waters or storms you find yourself in. That's the provision of God. That is what we need to be able to do to understand our identity. We need to relax and look at whatever excuses that we're making and saying, God, would you set me free from those? Like the Israelites would say on Yom Kippur, would you cut those off from me to set me free from any limitations I put on myself? Would you cut me free from any vows I've made of, I could never do that. I won't ever do that. I'll never say that. I'll never talk about it. I'll never do that. God, would you set us free? That's the beauty of Yom Kippur is God setting you free so you can dwell with God and we can go in that tent in our backyard and remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God through the generations. And that he is with you now, he is with your family, and he will continue to be with you. But we need to relax into his care. So God, we come before you today. And Lord, we, we we come before you and saying, It's hard to relax. It really is. It's hard sometimes when we feel like we're caught in a storm. It's hard to relax and to trust that you will keep us floating above the circumstances of life. But we come here today, Lord, uh, and the day before the Feast of Tabernacles, Lord, asking that you would set us free from any limitations that we have put on ourselves. Would you put us, set us free from any strings that have been attached to us that might pull us back and say, no, you could never do that. God, I pray that any excuses that we use as a people to limit ourselves, that you would set us free from those. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would visit each person here, each person online or listening online. And maybe, God, you would show us by your grace any vows that we have made that would limit us or any excuses that we use that would limit us, God, would you reveal that to us and set us free? God, our desire is to live and dwell with you because that is the place we find our true identity, is being with you. And God, I ask for a miraculous outpouring of your Holy Spirit over this body that you would help us to listen to the trumpet that you're calling to us, to wake us up to our calling and that, Lord, we could respond with confidence and boldness. God, I pray that you'd move in this body and prepare us for what you have for us. We want to be obedient. So God, even as Libby leads us in this last song, Lord, this beautiful song, the blessing, God, I pray that you'd minister to each person here. May we hear your voice during this song and respond to you in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.